Grace, mercy, and peace be upon you from God our Father and our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. You know, there, there are some things that when you are a kid, you're just oblivious to. Uh, like, take money, for example. It appears when you're a kid that it just comes by magic, right? Like, you, you just believe, at least I did, that my, my father's pockets were as deep as his pants because that's just where money came from. You, you're oblivious to how that money gets in the pocket and ultimately pays for your things. Of course, then they would say things like, what do you think, money grows on trees? And I'm like, I, I don't know, I'm a kid. Like, I, I don't know where it comes from. Like, you just, you're just oblivious to those kinds of things. I remember when I got to, um, when I got to college and I had my first sort of run-in with a laundromat. Now, I, I, listen, I grew up in a place where I understood how the laundry got done, right? There was a washer and a dryer in my house. Uh, but, but apparently, like separating colors and choosing temperatures actually does matter. Again, oblivious, right? Uh, when I first learned that my Uncle Terry had color blindness, I was beside myself. Like, I, I had absolutely no idea. Again, as a kid, you're just, you're just oblivious. And my parents would say things like, haven't you recognized that he wears a lot of army green? And I would say, well, like, yeah, but he's in the army. And so I just, I just think that's what you do, right? Because you're in the army, you wear army green. And they're like, no, no, no. Aunt Chris picks out all of his clothes. Like mind blown, right? Just, you're just oblivious to these kinds of things. Well, with the discovery of my uncle's colorblindness, there was a fascination in me with how it is he saw the world. Uh, according to the National Eye Institute here, colorblindness means this. It means that you see colors differently than others. And most of the time, colorblindness simply makes it hard to tell the difference between colors. Uh, most often, it's between red and green, but sometimes also blue and yellow. Uh, colorblindness also gives you difficulty distilling the nuance between shades of color. Uh, people who are completely colorblind, who don't see color at all, uh, quite frankly, it does exist, but it's very, very uncommon. Now, statistically, about one in 12 men are colorblind, and almost all of them by genetics. My Uncle Terry's colorblindness uh, was not completely complete colorblindness, but rather the kind that he had, a, he had a hard time making distinction between colors. And listen, I, I get that that's the way the world, the way that he's always seen the world, but, but I got to admit, I had sort of a, like a pang of disappointment for him, for having never really seen God's beauty in all of its creation, splendor, and glory right, to witness the subtle shifts of color from dawn to dusk, or those subtle shades of blue when you look out at Lake Michigan from shallow to deep. There is, there's just something, I think, about seeing in full color. Now, this is going to age some of us, but that's okay. How, how many of you, by show of hands, remember seeing The Wizard of Oz for the very first time? Some of you who don't even know what I'm talking about, that is a shame, and you need to fix that 
real quick, all right? The Wizard of Oz, when you first see it, it is mind-blowing. In that moment when they've moved from the black and white of Kansas, which there's probably a lot of truth to that, when they move from the black and white of Kansas to the color saturation of Oz, it's like seeing the world in a totally new way. You are seeing the world, as they described, in technicolor. And I would, I would venture to guess that that's part of what made the land of Oz so magical. You know, according to the Library of Congress, this is the most seen film in all of movie history. Uh, perhaps the move from no color to color is actually quite stirring for people. And yes, Judy Garland and Over the Rainbow, I get it. But friends, today, today we're going to wrap up our very quick series, And Justice for All. This has, been a, um, this has been a series helping us to rediscover the biblical understanding of justice. And we've been dipping briefly into politics only insofar as it allows us to see how both the conservative and the progressive platforms just miss the mark. Now today, today we're going to address the very current, very real, very ongoing reality of racial injustice. And again, in an attempt not to go too far down the assumption road, uh, before we allow the culture or the media or even the enemy to define the way the world is, we, as faithful followers of Jesus, have to allow the inspired and the inerrant word of God speak, to allow God's word to define the terms. And today, today, in order to understand the present situation in which we find ourselves, we have to look into the future. So you're going to want to grab a Bible, and let's go to Revelation, Revelation chapter 7, starting at verse 9. Revelation chapter 7, starting at verse 9. Now, as you're finding that, and if you've been with us over the course of this series, you'll recognize that we have looked at justice in the Old Testament, we've looked at justice in the Gospels, and now we're looking at justice in the New Testament. I said this in week one, but it bears repeating, justice is a whole Bible practice from Old to New Testament. And so here we are, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. Now, a very, again, a very quick word about Revelation. Revelation is a difficult book to interpret. Uh, apocalyptic literature is just saturated with both poetic and vivid imagery. And it's, it's our job, in concert with the Holy Spirit, to discern, to discern the approach of this book and what it says with some care. So the Apostle John, he is writing to Christians who are being heavily persecuted for their faith. And John himself has been exiled to the island of Patmos where he writes this letter. And he is joining in the suffering of God's people. And so while on the island of Patmos, John is given a revelation, thus we call the book 
Revelation, well done, just making sure you're with me. That's right, he had a revelation, so we call it revelation. I know, shocking. Here it is, as he gets this revelation, it is a revelation from Jesus Christ himself, who at the beginning of the book says, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I, Jesus says, I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what it is you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. So John is to write about what it is he sees to address both the present and the future. He's supposed to write down what he sees in order to address both the present and the future. Not only this, but the book of Revelation is supposed to be a letter of encouragement to God's people. An encouragement that the empires of the earth will fall and that God will reign supreme and all people, all people will experience God's justice. Now, when we get to Revelation chapter 7, John is being shown a picture of what is to come. And the picture here in Revelation chapter 7 is a beautiful, spellbinding picture that should have us longing for that day to arrive. Immediately after describing the 12 tribes of Israel, John is given a picture of something much larger than just tribal confederation that was Israel and post-Egypt, what we get here is a picture of God calling and forming a community that is multinational, multicultural, multi-ethnic, and multilinguistic, all standing before the throne of the Lamb dressed in robes of righteousness. Now, if we read it too quickly, we miss that in this multitude, in this multinational, multi-ethnic, multilinguistic, multicultural multitude, that in this multitude there is a diversity of color. God sees in technicolor. Right? Like Oz, this multitude is saturated with black and brown and red and yellow and white. God doesn't dismiss the color of one's skin, but actually celebrates the color of one's skin. Now, the theologian C. West Daniels, he notes this about Revelation chapter 7. Daniels writes, he says, Where the empire, that is kind of the the government, right? When the empire sorts people, protecting some while casting suspicion on others, the religion of the lamb is a community that has no need for an us versus them. This multitude in Revelation chapter 7, he says, is not formed by antagonism, but rather it is formed out of the freedom that comes from sacrificial love, from nonviolence, and from patient endurance. 
In other words, this picture that John has in Revelation 7, this picture of what is to come is different than the world that John was writing in, and it is different than the world in which we find ourselves. Where do we find ourselves? There's a book called The Big Sort by a sociologist by the name of Bill Bishop. And Bill Bishop, he writes the following. He says, America may be more diverse than ever from coast to coast. But, he says, the places where we live are becoming increasingly crowded with people who live and think and vote just like we do. And this social transformation, it didn't happen by accident. We have built a country where we can all choose the neighborhood and the church and the news shows that are most compatible with our lifestyle and our beliefs. And he says we are living with the consequences of this way of life. He says our country has become so polarized, so ideologically inbred, that people don't know and they can't understand people who live just a few miles away. Now let's be clear, social media and all of its algorithms only exacerbate the reality that Bill talks about in his book. Now interestingly, uh, lots of people who use social media don't actually understand the algorithms that are lying behind it. Uh, artificial intelligence is keeping track of what it is you click and how long it is you stay there and what it is you like. And then that same artificial intelligence simply feeds you more stories like it. In other words, the algorithms of social media create a feedback loop of people who think and act and believe like you. So the only reason you see stuff that you like on your feeds is because you like them. You're living in your own bubble. And the media is just helping you to live in your own bubble. And so what's left, if that's the truth, if we are more diverse than ever and yet living in places where that diversity is lost, and if we are frequent in the social media land, what does that mean for us now? Here's what's left, tribal mentality, not a celebration of God's wonderful creation, not a celebration of all of the colors of the rainbow. No, in many ways, the culture, the media, and even the enemy have driven us to a place where you and I are colorblind. But the picture, friends, the picture in Revelation 7 is a beautifully colored multitude. In fact, I believe it's this picture in Revelation chapter 7 that was in the mind's eye on that late August day in 1963. I believe this is the picture that Martin Luther King Jr. had in his mind when he gives arguably one of the greatest speeches of all time. When he would speak with conviction and clarity the following words. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, 
The sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at a table of brotherhood. So I believe that picture of Revelation 7, that multitude that is multicolored was in his heart and his mind. When he says, I have a dream that one day, even in Alabama, with all of its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with words of interposition and nullification, right there, one day in Alabama, little black girls and boys will be able to join hands with little white girls and boys. You see, I think that he was doing his best to live out his Lord's prayer so that when MLK Jr. would pray, thy kingdom come on earth in the same way that it is in heaven, He was praying that God's kingdom would be present, this picture of Revelation 7, present in our world today. Perhaps Martin Luther King Jr. was actually taking a note from his namesake, from Martin Luther, who writes in his small catechism about this petition in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come. He writes this, God's kingdom will come whether we pray for it or not, but... I pray in this petition that God's kingdom would come to us so that it would come through us. You see, when you and I pray the Lord's Prayer, specifically when we pray, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, we are praying that the picture in Revelation chapter 7, this picture of a beautiful, colorful multitude of every nation and race and language that it would come to us, to you and me, so that it can come through us. Now, Pastor Adam and I are fond of saying that that which God wants to do through you, he first has to do in you. To long for God's colorful multitude on earth means that our hearts have to be shaped by the very heart of God, his heart for justice, to ensure that people of color have the resources and the environments where they can flourish. We have to let God expose our hearts of indifference and in action on behalf of our neighbors of color. We have to allow God to work in such a way that we can admit our own shortcomings, our own biases, our power and our privilege and our failure to use those very things to provide justice to our neighbors of color. Friends, we have to admit that the picture of Revelation chapter 7, and dare I say, the picture of MLK's dream are still not realized today. Things are not as they should be. Racism still exists. Oppression still exists. All are not treated equally. And friends, this should not be. Jesus calls us, those of us who follow him in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, to be peacemakers. Not just people who keep the peace, but people who make the peace. Calling us to be peacemakers, to do 
justice and to do that justice and to make that peace as we walk humbly with God. Now friends, I I have no doubt that many of you want to help fight against racial injustice, but lots of you are uncertain how to begin. So today I'm gonna give you some practical ways to begin to step into doing the things of racial justice. Now the list I'm gonna give you today is by no means exhaustive, but it is, it is somewhere to start. And it is important for me to acknowledge that much of this list comes from Pastor Zach Zender, who's the author of the Red Letter Challenge. But I find his actions to be right on point, and I think to myself, why reinvent the wheel? So, first, for those of us who are followers of Jesus and want to do the hard work of racial reconciliation, the work of doing justice, the first thing we can do is pray. Now, there are going to be people who say we should do more than pray. We should act. We should speak. And yes, you are correct. We should act and we should speak, but we need to begin on the right foot. We have to begin in the right place. We cannot give away what we don't possess. So first, let's pray. Pray for the hurting. Pray for those in leadership in order to make wise decisions. Pray for compassion. Pray for justice. Pray for victims and for those who serve them. Pray for opportunities to use your voice in order to act. Pray for unity and pray that God would reveal how it is you can make peace and how it is you can do justice. The first way to begin to move is to act, is to pray. Number two, listen. <laughs> Proverbs 18.13 says this, to answer before listening is both folly and shame. James says in the New Testament, be quick to listen and slow to speak. If we want to do the work of justice for the hurting, then we have to know why they are hurting. So church, it's time to listen, to listen to people of color, to listen to their stories, to their problems, to their hurts, and to their pains. Because quite honestly, problems become real for us when we realize that on the other side of those problems are people. So pray and listen. Number three, we need to educate ourselves. We need to get out of the social media algorithms. We need to educate ourselves with people from different backgrounds, with different opinions, with different stories. Friends, this is particularly important. We have to enter into those conversations of educating ourselves with a willingness to learn and a humility, a humility that acknowledges that you and I don't have all the answers. Number four is to act. Uh, Some of you, some of you uh, might think, Pastor, this is not my problem. That you don't live with racism or that you don't have racial bias. 
that you might say to me, well, pastor, I'm colorblind. I don't see color. Well, friends, let me remind you that God sees in color. He doesn't ignore the color of skin, but celebrates it. Staggering data from the Barna Research Group confirms the fear that the church, or at least the people in it, may be a part of the problem in the hard work of racial reconciliation. Here's what their study concludes. This is Barna. It concludes the following. If you are a white evangelical Republican, you are less likely to think that race is a problem. But however, you are more likely to think that actually you are a victim of reverse racism. You are also less convinced that people of color are socially disadvantaged or that you might be advantaged. Yet, these are the same people, Barna says, these same groups of people that believe the church plays an important role in racial reconciliation. And so they point out the dilemma demonstrates that those supposedly most equipped for reconciliation don't actually see a need for it. Friends, our our first action needs to be repentance. It's, It's time, church, to turn away from our sinful, selfish ways and to walk in the light as the Lord Jesus did. See, St. Paul reminds us that repentance leads to reconciliation, that God has reconciled us to himself through the work of cross and resurrection and ascension. He, he took the first step in making things right. And then St. Paul reminds us that he's given you and me the ministry of reconciliation. And so, friends, it is time for us as followers of Jesus to take the first step toward reconciliation and peace. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. once said, you don't have to see the whole staircase. You just have to take the first step. Finally, and this really should be last, not first, finally you can speak. Uh, actions before words make your words more powerful. So, What can we say, aware of a sinful world and the reconciling work of Christ in and through us? Here's what we can say, church. Uh, Racism is real, and it is wrong. It is sin. Friends, we can use our voice in support of our sisters and brothers of color. We can speak. First we pray, then listen, then educate, then act, and finally speak. And then we sit back and by faith expect God to work. Because only only God can move mountains. Friends, the reality is injustice will bow to the power of our mighty God. Friends, if if you need a good cry, you should go home and get on YouTube. I I can't believe I'm actually suggesting you should, but you should. 
And watch what happens when a colorblind person puts on a pair of enchroma glasses. These are glasses that allow them to see the world in technicolor, to see the world as it is and how it could be. If you've never seen it, you should watch it. Well, friends, I have that same kind of weeping when I picture Revelation 7. The same kind of weeping to know that you and I get to be a part of seeing God's kingdom come on earth. So, sisters and brothers, I implore you to do justice, to love God's steadfast love, and to walk humbly with Him as we make peace, as we do justice, as we walk into racial reconciliation in the name of Jesus. Amen. So may the peace of God, which surpasses all human understanding, may guard and keep our hearts in Christ today and every day. Amen.